Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation takes us back into the Australian Classics Book Club. Now, the Aussie Classics Book Club is a monthly exploration of Australian writing, who we are, or perhaps aren't, and what makes us tick. Each episode features a panel of authors, editors, publishers, and it's a great way to look back and discover great Australian writing. Now, today in the book club, I'm going to be joined by Elena Gugulis, Senior Editor at Text Publishing, and Tegan Bennett-Daylight, who is the author of Bombora, What Falls Away, and Safety. Together, we will be discussing Ruth Parks, Fishing in the Sticks. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture. And we feature an Australian writer and explore their work every week, except except for the Australian Classics Book Club, where we look back. And the Great Conversations podcast is your chance to hear more of these discussions and dive deeper into the books that you love. We're always looking to get the word out to more book lovers, so why not share this podcast with a friend and continue the discussion together? Just by hitting subscribe, they'll get a great new episode every week, and you'll have a new friend to discuss books with. Fishing in the Sticks is a memoir of Ruth Park's writing life. From her arrival in Sydney and marriage to Darcy Nyland, her love and literary partner, through her extraordinary writing life, Fishing in the Sticks is a portrait of a writer amongst writers and illustrates the hardship and extraordinary creativity it took to live the writing life in Sydney through the middle 20th century. If you are a calendar watcher, you know that it is that weekend of the month where Final Draft goes into the Australian Classics Books Club. It is a show dedicated to works of Australian writing or Antipodean writing, as the case may be, uh, where we, we look back and discuss what makes this work so important in our history. Now, I am joined today by Elena Gagoulis. You know Elena if you listen to the book club. She is a senior editor at Text Publishing. I'm also joined by Tegan Bennett-Daylight. Tegan is a writer, a teacher and a critic. She's the author of three novels, Bombora, What Falls Away and Safety. Elena, Tegan, welcome and thank you for joining me in the book club. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Now, it's time to reveal today's book club. We will be discussing Ruth Park's Fishing in the Sticks. For many, Ruth Park will need no introduction, but we are, we are still going to talk a lot about her. So, Elena, can I ask you to give us a little bit of, a bit of the biography of Ruth Park? Sure, Andrew. So, as most of you will know, uh, Ruth Park is, of course, one of our Australia's most beloved authors, and like many of our most beloved Australians, she was born in New Zealand uh, in the early uh, 20th century and moved here uh, in 1942. So um, she married a journalist and author, Darcy Nyland, uh, and together they raised a family and produced um, a copious output of writing for Ruth Park that was uh, more than 50 books for children and adults. Um, she won many awards along the way for her first novel, The Half in the South, won the inaugural Sydney Morning Herald Literary Competition for Best Novel. Uh, it was subsequently translated into 37 languages. She uh, was also known for the Muddle-Headed Wombat radio series, which then uh, brought about um, some 15 or more Wombat books. Uh, and one of the books that, you, that readers may be uh, most familiar with would be Playing Beady Bow. That was, one of my, that was my first introduction to Ruth's work. Uh, so she had absolute prodigious output, uh, many books that are beloved by many generations, and uh, she sadly died in 2010. And so we're going to be discussing Fishing in the Sticks. It is a, a memoir of Ruth Park's writing life. 
And sort of from around her arrival in Australia, her, her marriage to Darcy Nyland, who was both her love and literary partner, their extraordinary literary life. It's, it's a portrait of a writer amongst writers and illustrates the hardship and extraordinary creativity it took to live the writing life in Sydney throughout the 20th century. Now, I started fishing in the sticks. This is, I, I feel a little bit embarrassed, um, confessing. Worried that I was, I was not familiar enough with Ruth Park's terrific literary output. I knew that there was always a copy of The Harp in the South on the bookshelf at home when I was growing up, but I had only vague memories of flicking through it. I actually called mum this morning and we had a little bit of a chat about The Harp in the South and her first thought was, oh, I loved that book. And I said, was, was there any controversy though about it? Because um, mum grew up Irish Catholic and she was like, oh no, I just love that book. And then as I read the book, I'm encountering the muddle-headed wombat and playing Beady Bow, I realised that while my memories were unreliable, because apparently as a child I was just unaware that there were these things called authors who created books, um, that Ruth Park had circled around my early years. Um, the writing life is so central to Fishing in the Sticks, to both Ruth Park and Darcy Nyland's life. And I thought that might be a place to start because so much of what she was dedicated to was this idea of the writing life and making the writing life work. I wondered if, if I could get your thoughts, though, on how the writing life contrasts with the, the perception of the peaceful business of writing that Darcy Nyland's doctor observes um, at, at one point in the book after Darcy has had a heart attack. Yes, should I leap in? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I think it would be great to. Yeah, I love that. I love that uh, that idea that it, that the writing life is a peaceful one. Um, it's something that um, women and I think men should be asked about a lot, but women are mostly the ones asked about it. It is actually just uh, quite exhausting to exist on several planes, and I think really that's what Ruth Park was able to do. But I think um, she. In, in Fishing in the Sticks, she really shows us how exhausted she was all the time. And it's because um, having children and, and, and writing, they're quite kind of similar vocations in a sense, or they have been for me anyway. And I think Park probably felt the same. She was really fiercely committed to writing, but she was also really fiercely committed to the children. And that pretty much means running kind of two very, very vital streams of self through yourself all the time. And it's tough and tiring. <laughs> it's the only thing I can say. I'm in, a, I'm in a more fortunate situation than her where my husband partly supports my writing and I don't have to work as hard as Park did. And having said that, my, my husband also does a great deal of housework and childcare, so I'm in better shape. Is it, you, you talked about the comparison of, of parenting and writing and I, I had to flick through my copy of the book because I recalled there was a picture it's a, and it's a picture of Darcy at a typewriter with, uh, with the twins wrapped around his neck and I can't recall where the quote came from in the book but it says, posterity might judge that being a father was more important than being a novelist. Is that a false equivalency, Tegan? Could you ever separate one as being more important than the other? I think I think um, we're given to trying to separate these things, but I think that you can't, and and you can't even think about posterity judging you or any of those things. All you can do is take the life that you've given and the life that you've chosen, and try to make the best of it that you can. I think um, I'm ambitious, but I'm not um, I'm not ambitious enough to want to overturn my life, my kids' lives, my husband's life. 
So I, I think I probably, um, I probably measure my ambition a little bit against that in the sense that I, I don't give way to it all the time because um, I'm actually really ambitious for my kids and their happiness as well, really ambitious for it. The writing life led both Ruth Park and Darcy Nyland along many avenues. And I wanted to think a little bit about this extraordinary, extraordinary literary output because I've already made my confession that whilst Ruth Park has you know, surrounded my childhood and my adult reading, parts of, at times I didn't realise it, but this output is so diverse. But there would be certain readers who might hear the names Ruth Park and Darcy Nyland and think The Harp in the South and The Shira Lee. These were just the tip of the iceberg, and I I was always astounded by the amount and the diversity of what they were doing, and and how much if we could if we could ever put ourselves back in time, how much their voices must have shaped many people's perceptions of Sydney and Australia. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The thing about them, and and I learned this um, early from reading the Drums Go Bang, which is the comic autobiography that they wrote together, which remains one of my favorite books. I read it over and over again as a kid. They made this decision that they would make their living entirely from writing. Now that's really difficult, really, really difficult thing to do. But what it does mean is that you start to, just as you say, shape a kind of Australian voice because they're taking part in it on so many levels, on the radio, in novels, in children's books, and eventually also in film. So, yeah, I think they, they played a huge part in, in making a kind of Australianness, you know? I wondered about that sense of Australianness as well. There was a quote that I, I wrote down because at the time it, it brought a lot of thoughts to mind. Um, and that was, uh, Ruth Park notes, that we were part of a movement towards Indigenous Australian writing. Now, the choice of vocabulary and our historical context would probably see us either phrasing that quite differently or viewing that in a quite different way. How, how can we assess Ruth Park's role and, and where, would we, where would we think of a comment like that now? What about you, Elena? What do you think of that? Because you're oh, seeing so many classic Australian novels go, go across your desk. Yes, well, look, I think that probably the traditional understanding of what constitutes an Australian classic has been largely one that is based on white writing and white writers, and that has been the way that we've understood ourselves and our history. And obviously that is something that is not the actual historical case, and it's becoming increasingly something that people are recognising is not what they how they view themselves now. So I think part of the text classic series and part of a lot of work that publishers uh, and writers and creators are doing now is to change that idea and to to allow for a broader understanding of uh, what it means to be Australian and what Australian writing really means. So I think that certainly Ruth Park was sympathetic to uh, the... Um, cause of Indigenous rights, uh, both in Australia and in New Zealand. Um, I think that probably a lot that approach would now seem quite um, old-fashioned and perhaps paternalistic, which I, I'm, I don't think was her intention at all. I think it, hers is a very inclusive literature. Um, she is her writing has always been concerned very much with class, and I think that her uh, her experience in New Zealand as a young girl, being a uh, the daughter of a man who um, struggled to find work through the Depression and uh, beyond, 
uh, and who lived in, in fairly straightened circumstances for most of her life. Uh, this was a really pressing issue for her, and so she... She, and she lived in this world. She lived in the world of the underclass in the slums of Surrey Hills. Uh, so the, the life of the underdog, the life of those who, uh, who were largely ignored by society was something that was desperately personal to her and that she wanted to write literature for. So I think that's, that's generally um, a part of her, her broader idea in, in her work. Yeah, I agree with that. And... Um I think she's actually pretty remarkable for the way she centralises working class experience in particular in her work. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know that um, you say, Andrew, that, that uh, your mother didn't feel that there was um, much controversy about the, uh, the harp in the South, um, perhaps in her household. But I know that, that Ruth, who doesn't actually talk about her work specifically so much in, in either Fishing in the Sticks or A Fence Around the Cuckoo so much as the, the reality of the working life, but she talks about the response to Harp in the South, which was one of, of absolute outrage in broader society. Um, how, how dare she write this book? How dare she? She, she say that there were such slums in Surrey Hills, of course, we didn't live like this. And Yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. There's an amazing line in um, The Drums Go Bang where she she and Darcy, because they're writing that book together, um, they record some of the letters that she got after the harp in the South and one of them just said, how can you say this? Sydney has been kind to you. <laughs> <laughs> so yep. there was this real resentment for seeming to expose Sydney as a place that wasn't entirely happy. Yep, yep, and that's exactly how we we have a history of treating um, those who are seen as outside in any way, whether they come from New Zealand or elsewhere or in any way are not part of the mainstream Australia. How dare you criticise us and our country um, yeah. when the reality was this was this was just drawn completely from life. This was her lived experience. Mm, I, I questioned Mum closely on this, and she's probably listening right now. So I'm going to say hi to Mum. <laughs> hi, Andrew's um, Mum. And and by the time by the time she had read, so she would have been born uh, in the, I think she was born in the year that Harp in the South came out. So by the time she read it, I imagine the lens on Harp in the South had changed. Mm. And I questioned her closely about whether her mother and father might have read it and there was any sense that it was controversial. But they they were also living in Geelong. uh, So perhaps some of that Sydney backlash was not as closely felt. Really, I'm very interested in what we started to talk there about the way the way Sydney slums were characterised by Ruth Park and the way she wrote about them, because I wondered when we think about her wanting to have this sort of sense of an Australian writing, whether in Harp in the South, the very name itself tells us the Harp being the Irish in the in the South, it gives us a lens to start to look at Australia as this country that is made up of so many different nationalities. Ruth Park coming herself from New Zealand, she's starting to show us a way to look at our country as being a country full of migration, even if it's not happy migration. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think um, I think she was always and ever open to that. And actually, if you read the first, um, the first volume of the autobiography, you also discover that... Um, that in her New Zealand life, her connection with Maori culture was really profound as well. She very much understood that um, that the lives of all countries have, you know, so many cultures running through them and so many experiences running through them. And she absolutely didn't shy away from that in the Harp in the South. 
I wanted to ask both of you about what you thought of the idea that, that perhaps literary frustration played a seminal role in, in shaping Park's life. I was really struck that her initial plan was to leave New Zealand to take work in San Francisco. On a, She'd been offered a job. And then the war, the outbreak of war, prevented that. But this also led to her relationship with Darcy Nyland and the support that they gave each other in literary endeavours. He, in his own way, both supported and hindered her writing with his kind of capricious ways. He'd take off for two weeks at a time going bush to research a novel. And then the reception that we, she received as a woman, and she attributes some of the negative response to Harp in the South on not only the subject matter, so much as the public not wanting to hear that subject matter from a woman. What role did frustration play in her writing and her life? Well, I, I, I sort of want to broaden that to say that um, I, think, I think we're given a really false impression of what a woman's life can be at mm. the moment. Not that, not that we can't achieve anything, but that that life itself provides frustration and and mm. kind of halts certain things just as you go along. It's just, mm. I think she was frustrated in ways, but she was satisfied in other ways. And I would say that probably you, Andrew, and you, Elena, both feel that as well. Mm. Some things turn out the way you want them and some things don't. So I do think that some of her... Some of her ambitions were frustrated, but I don't think I don't think it was uh, the great loss that sometimes this is portrayed to be. I think she had a really rich and really remarkable life, full of children, full of her intense and sometimes difficult husband, full of work, full of friends, full of family. I think she um, I think she didn't live a frustrated life, even though she didn't achieve some of the things she imagined that she might at the beginning. I think that's really true. And I think what's so, what's so interesting about this book is, as a kind of uh, document of the writer's life, is that it's not what probably a lot of people would think in the idea of uh, this kind of perhaps highfalutin talk of uh, the realm of ideas and and uh, that kind of thing. It's actually it's such a uh, domestic and economic portrait of that life. It is about how they find the time to make the money to survive and the calculus that that requires to uh, for uh, for two writers in the same household trying to get by. Uh, and what is so telling and frustrating for me as a reader, maybe not for Ruth Park so much, is uh, reading it with the through the prism of knowing that she is the one whose work is is the more enduring, um, if I can say so. I think that probably yeah, people are aware true. of Ruth Park's work than Darcy Nylands now. Uh, and she was the one who actually probably earned the most money from her from her writing and supported the household. And yet her her work was always secondary to his. And she acknowledges herself that that was how she saw it. Um, there's one point in the book, um, actually I'm not sure if it's, I think it is in Fishing of the Sticks, it must be, it's um, where they are, they, they don't have a desk, they don't have any space for them to write, and both of them obviously need space to write. And when they finally have that space, uh, of course, it's, it's Darcy who assumes the desk is his, and uh, Ruth makes do with writing on the uh, on her typewriter on the um, ironing board. So I think that's such a good uh, encapsulation of what that that relationship was like, and it's, it wasn't necessarily one in which he uh, she doesn't view it as as an unequal relationship so much, and she kind of writes of it with a, a wry uh, frustration, but uh, it's just infuriating from a contemporary standpoint to look back and say, uh, how could this have been the case? Mm. 
but I'm sure that's actually still the reality for a lot of people these days as well. There's that moment a, a little bit later on too, Elena, where um, they, they, I think it's when they've bought the house and she says, oh, and space for two desks. And Darcy sort of, he responds with two desks. Oh, yeah, it's of course, <laughs> of course, two desks. That's right. I was yeah, re- she says that she says that amazing thing that um, his own needs sort of I think it's something like dazzled before him like a blinding sun mm-hmm. and if anybody else's needs got in the way he was staggered taken aback <laughs> and yet she writes so warmly of him as a father and a husband and and she didn't seem to um, to I mean she she writes of her, her irritation but it doesn't seem to to play into a, a broader idea of of gender roles or, or anything like that which I think is just really a, a Indicative of the times in which she's writing, and also of, of Ruth Park herself, which who was she was very much a uh, just get it done, don't complain mm. um, kind of a, a person, which makes her book so incredibly uh, warm and modest and rich to read. There were there were definitely moments that I read sort of shamefacedly where she's reflecting on Darcy, or pro- probably predominantly Darcy, but also other responses from from men and. The prevailing attitude seemed to be, well, well, that's just men and you you kind of have to accept it to get it done. And I thought that's, I mean, for, for, from a modern lens, that's shameful. That's that's shameful as a man to go, oh, God, that's what people think think of us, that we're just so terrible. Don't even try and change us. Just accept us and hope we don't do too much damage. Um, and then, then it's also very interesting to look back and some of the vagaries of and when I talked about frustration before, I was thinking of the vagaries of frustration leading to other things. Their dealings with Angus and Robertson uh, as a publisher who would reject a text only to want it back two years later when it's proven itself overseas or dealings with production companies stealing, outright stealing texts. No, publishing, publishing companies definitely don't come out of this book looking particularly good, I have to say. But still they so. don't, do they? And I have to say, um, in my contemporary experience of publishing, that kind of stuff is just unthinkable. It's it's quite terrifying and outrageous to um, that they just didn't have the kind of structural support that that writers do today. Not just agents, but just just uh, I think that that probably still be an argument for saying that the arts aren't as respected as they could be in Australian society. But nonetheless, I do think. Um, I do think writers have legal, structural, and societal kind of respect that um, that these guys didn't have. They were just sort of operating out of a system, so they didn't they or they were operating out of a non-existent system. Actually, they didn't they didn't know what their rights were. They weren't able to um, fight for their rights in the way that um, Australian writers can these days. I think it was a very, very, very different atmosphere. There's a most amazing spray too about copyright and the way it it lapses after 50 years and and public domain for authors' works and it was it was brilliant to read, uh, especially when she notes that nowhere else does this does this exist. You know, you you don't buy a house and it it reverts back to the common domain 50 years after your death, and this this sarcastic tone about the supposed artistic value to the whole community of the arts at, at the expense of the the creator's um, livelihood. 
I'll leave that with you, Elena. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is um, yeah, opening a Pandora's box there, Andrew. I think that, um, look, I, I um, respect Ruth Park's position on that and I think that if I was making my living off writing, I um, may well feel uh, something similar. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about um, the value of the of art in the public domain and the opportunities it affords to new creators to um, contribute to the conversation. And um, oh, I think that's that's probably some, a conversation for another day. <laughs> I'm going to move back. I'm going to move back to safer ground of other resonances that I got in the book. And, and Tegan, I wanted to ask you about the well of literature that you describe in your introduction to this novel. How it continually replenishes our view of where we live. Because I secretly thrill to open any book about Sydney and compare and contrast it to my own experience. So I, I live near Petersham where Ruth Park and Darcy Nyland made a home for a brief while. And as I read, I was just struck by similarities and and contrasts. Their ongoing search for accommodation through the early parts of the book just shows how bad and for how long Sydney's just been an absolute binfire for renters. Um, yeah. Yeah, no question of that. The reflection, she also talks about, obviously a very different situation at the time, but she talks about how the current housing situation is exacerbated by the country's immigration policy and the circumstances of the war and what that created. But it has, in a very different context, echoes of the way we might hold that discussion. And even the response to the harp in the South made me think, well, decades before the internet was even conceivable, Australia had these really virulent trolls and they just didn't have a platform like Twitter or Facebook. They had to they had to write letters to the editor. Again again I uh, just just to think about the housing thing in particular. Mm. I think um look, you know, you hear a lot of people complain about about um things like identity politics and political correctness and ridiculous things like that. But actually, I think the kind of system that we've currently got of respecting the rights um, of people in all sorts of ways is a good one, and I think it should increase. Well, I, I guess what I want to bring up is um, my uh, mother was born in 1941, and her father died in 1950, leaving her mother with four children. And her mother was bullied out of rental house after mm. rental house by um, landlords making strange sexual advances to her, by hassling her, by doing all sorts of really creepy stuff. Now, she will be protected these days. Mm. And Darcy, Darcy Nyland and Ruth Park were totally unprotected in their search for accommodation. They could be chucked out at a moment's notice. They could rent a place and then find that it, it didn't work or it wasn't secure all of these sorts of things, it's just such a changed atmosphere. The other thing, again, that I, I really noticed in reading um, reading this again and always in reading Park's book is the sense of distances in Sydney. So when they're living out on the northern beaches, that's like a country town. It's an outpost. It, you get this, this real feeling of Sydney as a, a wider, longer, broader sort of a place. I find it really fascinating and engaging. Sorry, those are two very different threads, but those are the things that occur to me. <laughs> yeah, it's and I was just really struck by your illusion of the of the well and the way reading a book like this can can help you see so much of your own city. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Every time you read Park, and and more so for me than, for instance, I'm reading a bit of Patrick White at the moment. Actually, I'm reading a lot of Australian literature because I'm teaching it to my students. Um, but Park's sense of place is really, really profound. 
and um, you get this beautiful feeling of if you walk around somewhere like Surrey Hills, you can feel her Sydney overlaid on the Sydney that you're seeing. Uh, there's something very remarkable in the vividness of her description and the way of her recording place that just lasts and lasts, I think. I, I absolutely needed this book because I think it was the day I started it or it was definitely the week that I started reading it. I went to Surrey Hills for the first time in a while, which is really strange because where I'm sitting, I am 500 metres from Surrey Hills <laughs> across the train line. And I walked up Devonshire Street, which of course now is not completely torn up, but completely barricaded off for the this light rail that they're putting in. And I, I really needed Fishing in the Sticks to actually show me that street as, as something other than uh, a construction zone at the moment. Um, and yeah. it was just, it was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's exciting. Do you know Sydney well, Elena, yourself? I, I haven't spent a lot of time in Sydney, um, to be honest, but it certainly did, or a version of it did come to life in reading in reading this book, and I think that is something that's actually, I don't know if you agree with me on this, um, Tegan, but uh, the sense of place is something that really, I think, char- characterises a lot of Australian literature that in so many books uh, by Australians places almost a character in itself, whether it's a city or whether it's a rural landscape. Um, and I think that that's strong in, in all of Ruth Park's work and uh, and it does come to life, particularly in the biographies. Yeah, there's no question, I think, that Sydney was um, a kind of second love affair for her, um, along with along with Darcy Nyland himself. There's, you know, she came she came from New Zealand as a 17 or 18-year-old and, and I think she fell in love with the place. And perhaps just, just as an aside too, when we talk about that sense of place, Elena, that you mentioned, and Sydney, there's you know, such an amazing crop of artists emerging, showing us Western Sydney mm-hmm. in a way like, I mean, you, you talked, um, Tegan, about the expansiveness of Sydney and then writers coming out of uh, organisations like Sweatshop in Western Sydney are, are showing us new parts of the city, parts that might have been neglected or, or not getting as much of a view. So this is, this is something that continues and there's so much vibrant literature out there. Mm, mm. There's a beautiful um, ongoing series in Sydney Review of Books about place, actually. It's really worth checking out. Uh, writers from all different parts of Sydney uh, write about particular suburbs, and uh, it's really quite exciting, actually. <laughs> I'd like to throw one thing in, which is to say that um, when you're a young writer or when you're thinking of becoming a writer and you're very young, there are often a few books that can... Um, make the writing life seem possible because it is a really weird life and it is a life that you have to invent from the ground up. But the book, The Drums Go Bang, I think I probably first read it when I was 11 or 12 and I read it and read it and read it and read it all through my teenage years and I always imagined that 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 was the kind of writer that I would be, that I would write anything for money. turned out not to be true because... um, uh, it's sort of a little bit difficult to write deep literature and anything for money at the same time. But I guess I would say to people that if they can find a second-hand copy of that book um, and if they want to be writers or if they want to read just a really beautiful, um, beautiful, funny autobiography, it's a really great companion volume to um, these two amazing, rich uh, volumes of autobiography by Ruth Park. They, they form a lovely trio. So I would recommend all three of them very strongly. 
Well, I'm just going to throw, you know, a, a wonderful plug to text as well, because, of course, it is the classics range. And I reckon if we give them enough time, they'll, they'll put out the drums go bang for us because it's already such an amazing collection. I want to say thank you. Uh, I want to say thank you to Elena Gagoulas, uh, Senior Editor at Text Publishing. I want to say thank you to Tegan Bennett Daylight, who have joined me for our discussion of Ruth Parks fishing in the sticks in the Australian Classics Book Club. Thank you, Elena. Thank you, Tegan. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Tegan. Thanks so much. That's it for this great conversation in the Australian Classics Book Club. I want to thank Elena Gagoulas and Tegan Bennett Daylight for joining me and discussing Ruth Parks' Fishing in the Sticks. The Australian Classics Book Club will be back next month to discuss Thomas Keneally's A Dutiful Daughter. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. You can click subscribe in your podcast app and get a great new conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.